Now I want to go back for a moment here to Deuteronomy 12 in regards to the festival tithe. Uh, there's a point I, I think we need to consider. Uh, he talks about going in verse 14 to the place which the eternal shall choose in one of your tribes. He chose Jerusalem uh, in Judah is what he chose. And he makes a point in another place that we go where God chooses or if it's too far we stay home. We do not have the option of having the feast where we might choose, but we have to do it where God chooses. Uh, but we're not to take that festival tithe and kill it and eat it in our gates, but we're to take it to the feast. And if we can't, uh, in an agricultural society, if it's too far and you can't trail your herd or put it on the train or whatever, you sell them and then bind the money up and take it and enjoy the feast with that festival tithe. But down in verse 18, you must eat them before the place, before the eternal your God, in the place which the eternal your God shall choose. And then it gives a category of how that money is to be used. You, so you eat of your second tithe or festival tithe, and your son, and your daughter, and your manservant, and your maidservant, and the Levite that is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God in all that you put your hand to do. Uh, let's see, this one doesn't give. I think Deuteronomy 14 does. Where you share that. Yes, uh, chapter 14, verse 29. Uh, well, this is speaking of the, of the third type here. Let me see here if I see something here. But this chapter does talk about going to the place God chooses, and that's where it tells you you can bind it up into money and so on, and for your household to rejoice. Uh, verse 27, this is Deuteronomy 14, And the Levite that is within your gates, you shall not forsake him. Uh, that's essentially what it was saying back here. But it gives a category. I'm back in chapter 12 now. So you do it for your family, uh, your employees, if they go to the feast, and the Levite that is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God in all that you put your hands to. Now there's a, an admonition here in verse 19 uh, that I have not emphasized, and I want to read it today. Take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. Well, that's a pretty strong thing to say. But I think when it comes to second tithe and the third tithe, which we keep, we don't take it up to the feast to, uh, to eat before the eternal at the feast. It says bind it up at your house and take care of the widow, the stranger, the fatherless, uh, and the Levite. Now, the reason I have not emphasized the part about the Levite is primarily because of misuse and abuse that many of you experienced, and I did as well, and worldwide, long ago, when everybody sent a tithe of their tithe, their second tithe in to take care of the Levites and the widow and the orphan. So you kept 90% of it by their administrative decision and you sent 10% in. Then, of course, after the festival, if you had any left, they 
requested that you send all excess in to headquarters, and then that was used as well for the Levite and the orphan and the widow, primarily, though in that case it was <laughs> the Levite, I'm sorry to say. So we have tried to create a new culture here. I am very sensitive about asking for money for the ministry and any kind of that thing, and I think you who have been with us now for 10 years know that I do not emphasize that. I do not emphasize the offerings. Uh, I mention them in passing once in a while, but we don't do the circus that used to be done where you had to give your folding money plus your checks plus tear them up and make a bigger one on the spot. Uh, I have felt that God has made it very clear that we are to give out of our heart and the treasure that is there and how we feel toward God, not toward the ministry, not toward each other, but it is an offering to God that he has chosen to have men receive. And I have tried to use the tithes and the offerings in this group primarily for this group. Uh, this building was built with those. The building next door was. Uh, yes, we used the upfront money on the lots to help develop the water and the power and various things. But a good percentage of what comes in goes to serving all of us here in the community as well as, uh, you know, tapes and postage and various things that have to do with the work itself, Internet, and, and so on. But I have not made that an emphasis on purpose, and I fear sometimes, in some ways, by trying to provide food and so on at the feast and so on uh, from the church that we have established, to some degree at least, a welfare mentality where we get to the point we expect everything to be done for us and we don't have to pay. And that, uh, if it comes to that, is wrong. And I'm not saying there is much of that, but we are in danger of that if we're not careful. Uh, we do not believe in communism nor socialism, as our country is very quickly going to now. Uh, but we do believe in everybody working and taking care of themselves if possible. And then if you have those who are poor or strangers or new or widows or orphans uh, who do not have much income, then that money is there for their use. God has a limited welfare program. He does say that if you don't work, you don't eat. Now that's considering being able-bodied and having a mind and, you know, various things whereby we can work. So he expects us to produce... And yet, on the other hand, if we are unable to produce as much as we would like to, uh, then sometimes there is a net there that is needed. And you keep that third tithe in your place, and you bestow that where need arises. But it has to be within the guidelines of what God says there in Deuteronomy 14. You don't have freedom just to give it wherever you want, but it needs to be in those guidelines. So keep those firmly in mind. Now the reason I bring this up is uh, we have elders here who uh, do not have, well, they're old, don't have gainful employment, uh, you know, barely get by on Social Security or whatever. And uh, we tend to forget them. When you think of second tithe help or 
gift or whatever, however you want to phrase it. We think of the widow, we think of the orphan, we think of somebody who might be poor or not have much income, but somehow it's sort of been tuned out because I asked one of the elders the other day if he had ever received any, anyone had ever brought any second tithe to him. And he said, no, it never happened in these ten years. So I kind of thought, I wonder if we're missing something here that God said to take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. Now we're not to let any of God's words fall to the ground, and we try to do that. I don't emphasize this kind of scripture much because I don't like to ask for money for the ministry. And I'm not asking it for me necessarily. I'm just asking it for the Levite or the elders and so on. But we include them in our thinking, uh, as God says to do. So it's easy, I guess, to think, well, they're taken care of. They always were in, well, in worldwide, see. But then since we left worldwide, that system of you turning in 10% of your second tithe and then your excess, we did away with because it isn't necessarily scriptural. So what does it do? Instead of the church requesting you to turn in money to take care of those, whether you like it or not, we have put the responsibility back where it belongs. That's on the individual. You are to take care of what God tells you to do, see? So it's not for us to legislate or administrate and say, well, we're going to take so much. Uh, and <laughs> I know this is sometimes confusing for you as to who deserves. And sometimes it seems one or two that immediately would come to our mind are the ones that get the most help and then others are kind of overlooked. So if you have confusion about that, I would be happy to sit down with you and discuss who as individuals are actually eligible for second or third tithe assistance and the parameters of that. I think we've gone through it in sermons on tithing before, uh, at least in general, but maybe not in specific, specifically in terms of who might or might not be eligible. And then, uh, see, that teaches you wisdom. It teaches you to be sensitive and watch for needs. It teaches you to give of yourself, as God said to do, uh, without someone doing it for you. Now, in some ways, that creates a problem because the church does not have any second tithe fund to say, take care of festival costs. So if we have a festival cost, uh, then we just need to let you know what it is, and then if some of you have enough, then you can contribute to that or if we have special meals during the feast, which we are, then uh, we can charge so much to take care of the food and the cutlery or what, you know, whatever the, the needs are to put that meal on or that activity on. So it comes back on the individual. And that's what we're here to learn is individual responsibility, individual wisdom, uh, to learn to use things the way God intended them to be used. The ministry used to do it for you, and then they took care of themselves uh, by far too much while the widows and the orphans suffered. And I am keenly aware of that, believe me. And that's why I have not emphasized these things. But on the other hand, if something is being overlooked in that regard, then I think that I should make a statement on it and, and point out, hey, let's be sure we live up to verse 19 here, not just to 
the others, which auto comes almost automatically, but we overlook the one category. So I just wanted to pass that along to be sure we keep things in the correct balance and take care of what God says to do. And it's, you know, it's really easy to overlook some of the things that God says, uh, no matter what they are. And uh, I want to emphasize character, growth, overcoming, and those things more than I do monetary. And I don't even, I don't like to bring up money, period. But sometimes it is necessary because right now that's what the world operates on. And we are still tied into the system and we still have to operate on it. So uh, bear those things in mind at least. Uh, one other note I might mention as the feast comes, uh, we are going to have visitors coming in. Some of them have never been here nor met us or know much about us really. And uh, just a word, I think our character and our individuality and our Christianity will probably take care of most things, uh, but welcome them uh, in a friendly, loving way. Uh, they may have a lot of different beliefs than we do, some of them. Uh, they may, some of them are coming primarily because, I, I think at least, I haven't had that much conversation with some, but uh, primarily because of when we're keeping the feast, because they agree in keeping the vernal equinox and the, the new moon after that being the first month of the year. So they're coming, and I don't know how much they've been on the website or, or uh, read our sermons and know some of our beliefs, but uh, I think we need to be careful and use wisdom and how much we are a dump truck to them. Uh, you know, you see somebody new and maybe they don't know or understand or understand why we do certain things the way we do them. So we make it a committee of one to be sure they understand everything we think we understand. And uh, that can be too much. So let's just use caution and be careful. I'm not saying don't say anything. If there's questions asked, they can be answered. Just be careful. Uh, you know, somebody is new. You want to give them an opportunity to at least see we're friendly and don't have three heads each, uh, and that we're hopefully normal in most respects. And the doctrinal issues can be handled one at a time as they come up or whatever. It's just like when the ministry used to go visit new people who wrote in, they'd been listening to plain, the world tomorrow and reading the plain truth, maybe. Well, those were important things, but they were the milk. And that's all they'd heard. So when the ministry went out to visit with them, they weren't supposed to just dump everything we believed on the first visit. There have been a lot of people who would have said, I don't want that. You know, each time you went back, maybe you'd, you'd recommend, well, you get this booklet and this booklet and this booklet and read them. Next time I come, we'll discuss those, and then maybe I'll give you some more reading material. And you bring them along. So I don't know whether some people who are coming back who have been here before and not been here for a while, uh, what category they're in. We've learned a lot of things since then. And then we have brand new people that have never been here before. So just a, a word to the wise. Uh, to be careful, friendly, warm, giving, thankful to have new people, and yet on the other hand, consider them. And, you know, there are some things we've learned that were kind of hard for some of us to take at first, and may still be, to some degree, a lump in our throat, wondering 
is that really right? Well, is it fair to dump it all on somebody brand new uh, when we ourselves had to study, 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 you know, and try to get things figured out? And we're still studying and trying to get things figured out. I hope we're getting it right, but as new information comes, we have to consider it. And, you know, there have been a lot of changes we've made over the last 10 years in, in terms of what worldwide taught us and that basic Sabbath, holy days, and so on is certainly correct. But when you have a totally different calendar and you understand uh, even a different name for Christ and all kinds of things, it begins to add up and it could be like being smacked in the face with a tuba cord. So I just wanted to say that ahead of time uh, so that we might think before we speak and, and use wisdom. Now let's go back for a moment at the beginning of the sermon to Matthew 25. This is where I ended up last time. And it sets the stage for where I wish to go today. <clears throat> but as a matter of a quick review, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. This is a time when Christ renders his judgment. Now, we need to all understand, of course, the judgment is now upon the house of Israel, spiritual Israel. Uh, it is on physical Israel in terms of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And sentence is about to be passed, and the penalties are going to be passed out in terms of the Old Covenant. Now, in terms of the New, we as spiritual Israel are being judged on a daily basis on our thoughts, our actions, our lives as we live them. I think sometimes it's easy to retain the old Protestant view that when Christ comes back, he's suddenly going to make a judgment and send goats left and sheep right. Now, that is scripture, and it is certainly true, and yet it is ameliorated somewhat by other scriptures, which indicate that it is a process in time. Uh, this is a day of salvation, as Paul put it. So we are being judged daily, and whether or not we are fit to be the bride of Christ is now in session. When Christ returns is when the judgment is rendered, but the trial period is now. We need to grasp that. And when we get down to verse 34 of Matthew 25, then shall a king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now he does say that it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That is his desire and purpose, as I stated. Uh, so when the time comes, it is time to inherit the kingdom. And then he makes a statement, which they did not understand. They didn't grasp it. And I wonder sometimes how deeply we grasp it. I know we've read over this many times. It's been preached many times. But I wonder if the full power of it hits us, of what he's really saying here. Because he volunteers this. This is not a question asked of him. He volunteers. I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? They'd been with him three and a half years, almost at this point, and they'd never seen him in those conditions. So when he said that, projecting forward to the first resurrection, they began to say, what do you mean? We've not ever seen you like that. And yet you're saying, we did these things. Wait a minute. Please, we haven't done these things. You've never been that way. Didn't get it. When did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. So he said, You did not directly do these things to me. But if you did it to the very least of the brethren, or those that men would consider the least, you did it to me. So he is absolutely equating how we treat one another with the true relationship between him and us. Now we may think we have a relationship with Christ and the Father. But there is a whole world of people out there who think they have a relationship with God who do not. Do we grasp that? Christ told the Pharisees who truly thought with all their hearts they had a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I do not know you. You do not have a relationship with my father. You are of your father, the devil. Now how is it possible for us to think we worship the true living God of creation, the Almighty, the Father of all humankind, and not have any relationship with him at all? I'm telling you, that is very, very possible to do. He said, unless you keep the commandments, the ordinances, and the statutes of God, he won't know you. And if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. We've been over all that. He says, those that say they know me, those that say they know me, and keep not the commandments, are liars, and the truth is not in them. 1 John 5, 3. So it is possible to deceive ourselves that we have a relationship with God when in his mind there is none there whatsoever. How could anyone be that deceived? Now he is bringing that out here in no uncertain terms. This is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible, right here, this passage when you really buckle down to getting what it's saying. I know I made a strong point of this at the end of the last sermon, but I think it needs to be reemphasized as an introduction today, because where I'm going next will echo this. 
The king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. So he is equating how we treat each other with our relationship with him. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into Gehenna fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But if humans are going to fry in it too and die, the wages of sin is death. Now, how does he make such a dire judgment? He uses the exact same formula. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Now see how that second and third tithe thing, or festival tithe and four tithe, or whatever you want to call it, fits into this? God set those up so that the people in those categories would be taken care of. So part of it is legislative, and part of it is of free will. Stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him. So they have a question about this judgment too. Lord, when saw we you hungry, or athirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? So we haven't, again, we haven't seen any of this. How can this be? Then shall he answer them. Now this is when their final judgment, the sentence, is passed out. Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. We might have the idea that our judgment is based upon our prayers our Bible study, our talking to God. Now, that is all important to the relationship to be sure our attitudes stay right so that we have the right approach to life and to relationships. But the judgment is going to be handed down based on how we treat each other. Are you ready for that? Are any of us ready for that? You see, we try to, in our minds, privately keep our relationship with God here, and then we deal with each other sometimes on a totally different level, don't we? Do we treat each other day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, and second to second, the way we think we would treat Christ if he were standing right here? That's where our judgment is. That's how his opinion, I mean from a legal standpoint, the opinion of the judge or the judgment that is passed down is formulated. How we treat each other. Are you ready for the judgment? Well, what did I earlier say? Judgment is now on the house of Israel. We are being judged every day 
by the way we treat each other, and we're the weak in the base, so we're the least of those, aren't we? All of us. How do we treat each other? That is a daily judgment that is going on. And at some point, he's going to say, I've seen enough. Now here is my judgment on this one, this one, this one, that one, and the other one. Here is my sentence. Having seen all the evidence, watched that life, they're either going to be in the kingdom of God or they're going to be turned away because they didn't treat each other the way they said they would have treated me. Or they did do that in the way that they said they would treat me. Either the good side or the bad side of it. You didn't do it to me because you didn't do it to each other. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, a death that will last forever, never again a resurrection, but the righteous into life eternal. That's where it is. That's where we are. Now, since we have committed and covenanted with God and vowed to Him to serve each other the way He would be served, that is how He will judge us. Now, that opens a whole world of thought. How then does He expect us to treat one another? Remember now, we're sister wives. It is a spiritual form of polygamy in a way, because Christ is going to marry 144,000 individuals. And he is preparing that number. Many have lived and died, and the evidence is all in for them, beginning all the way back with Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, a few from the Old Testament who came to understand spiritual things. And then from the beginning of the New Testament after Christ was resurrected, uh, there was a group of thousands of people who were converted at that time and lived out their lives. So the judgment has been made on them. They are either in the book of life as one of those 144,000, those names are written in the book of life, or God has not written them there because they took themselves out even though they declared themselves in. Now you and I have declared ourselves in. We've said we want to be in that book of life. We want to be among those who live forever as the bride of Christ. Isn't that what we declare? That was our goal and our purpose. When we went under that water and had his blood wash away our sins, and we de decided then we would live anew, a life dedicated to him and to his ways and to his people and to his work on this earth. We dedicated ourselves to that. We vowed that. And that's as strong as you can get, because we're not to swear at all. Now, vow carries the same weight. Now, I want to go to Matthew 5, because here he gives a great deal more detail on what he talked about in Matthew 25. Now, Matthew 5 had been given at the beginning 
of his ministry to his disciples. Some of the multitude of the world came in and heard, but he did set himself on a mountain apart to explain the terms of the covenant that he was making with them and with the New Testament church. So here he gives the details. He summarizes it in Matthew 25 at the end of his ministry because it was drawing to a close and the question of judgment came up. But in reality, he was referring back to this initial teaching or sermon, if you will, to his disciples. I went through this in detail, uh, oh, it's been quite a few years now, in a series called God's Standard for Us. Some of you have heard that. Some may not have. But in any case, this is very basic doctrinal truth. And what he says in a few verses there in Matthew 25 is laid out for us here in detail. And I think it is very important. We started this series at the beginning of Trumpets to get into the meaning of trumpets, and I haven't gotten fully to that yet, but given time we will by atonement or the end of the feast. I'm not sure when, but we're headed that direction. But meat in due season is the whole feast season, beginning with trumpets on the first day of the month through the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're going to lay out the meaning of these feasts as we go through them, and there isn't enough time on a one-day festival or even a double Sabbath for me to cover it in the way that I feel that it needs to be covered, so it'll, trumpets may hit in a Feast of Tabernacles for all I know, and then we'll pick up the Feast of Tabernacles theme as well. So be that as it may, I want to go into Matthew 5 today because we need to understand how we are to be treating other candidates to be the bride of Christ. If that is our judgment, and it is, as he plainly said, and we read last week and today as well, if that is the key, then we need to have in the forefronts of our minds the standards, the ways, the methods that are to be used in how we deal with one another and with the world around us, for that matter. Here is a primer on how to be the bride of Christ. A very short synopsis. Now you have the rest of the New Testament to add more detail, to expound it more. But here is how he laid it out at the very beginning. And I think it is certainly worth our time to understand how to be the bride of Christ. Now a lot of us have experienced marriage on this earth. And it has been up and down, good at times, bumpy at times. We're human beings. And whoever we're married to is a human being as well. So we all have our foibles. We have our sins. We have our weaknesses. We have our personality conflicts and differences. We have all kinds of things that come up. A marriage on this earth is difficult at best and impossible at worst. What do you have? You have two human beings, male and female only, thank you, who come together with different sets of parents, with different backgrounds, with different experiences, 
with different hang-ups, different lives. And then they get to know each other over a period of weeks or months or in some cases even years. And they still don't know each other fully. They still have differing views on various things. And those then become points of contention in the relationship. They may make mistakes in their relationship with one another. They may offend or hurt one another. And those things tend to stay there, don't they? They're hard to get rid of. They affect the relationship. And they're easy to come back to mind at times of stress. That's the human state. Now, Emmanuel the king, or the husband in this case, is coming back to this earth to claim a bride. Now, what he is doing in the meantime is educating people to be a proper bride for himself. Now, he understands that we all have different backgrounds. We've been involved in different sins and weaknesses and problems, and we have difficulties with our personalities, with our thoughts, with everything. And he's saying, I'm going to take off the face of the earth the weakest and the basest, and I'm going to work with them. I'm not going to take the mighty and the strong and the smart and the powerful. They're too hard to work with. They have pride, vanity, ego. I'm going to work with those who are the downtrodden because they don't have vanity and pride and ego and all of those things. I jest. It's not so much whether we are qualified, it is to show his greatness and his power. He is taking the weak and the base and transforming them so that they might be an example to the wise and the smart, truly wise, truly smart, truly noble of the earth. Because there are those. That's not the ones he chooses to work with. It is to confound the wise that he chose you and me. Who are those people, after all? How would he use them? Because of his might, of his power, of his capacity to take that which is nothing and make it into something. And that is exactly what he's doing with you and me. Is it discouraging at times? Is it frustrating when we look at ourselves and say, man, I'll never make it? And on there, that is a danger. But he said, he will never leave nor forsake us. He will be with us all the way through. He won't give up on us. Now, we might give up on ourselves, but he won't give up on us until we show him we absolutely will not go his way. He's willing to work with that which is imperfect, and make it the way it ought to be. We sometimes are not that patient, are we? If we see someone that we think is less than perfect, and certainly less perfect than we are at the moment when we're thinking this, <coughs> sometimes we have critical, angry, impatient, self-righteous, judgmental attitudes 
toward our brothers and sisters. <coughs> Far more so than he does with us. He's giving us opportunity. He's giving us chances. He's giving us forgiveness. He's giving us every opportunity to overcome, to grow, to change, to be different. Now, echoing Matthew 25, we must do that with one another. If not, we're going into the lake of fire. It's just that plain. Let that sink in. Grasp that. We don't always, do we? We get all emotional. We get all excited over the mistakes, sins, true or alleged, among ourselves. And we get all over each other, don't we? And we backbite one another and stab one another in the back and make scurrilous comments and so on, unadvisedly. And God says, do I know that one? That's not acting like my bride. My bride wouldn't do that. My bride would be fair and patient, loving, tender, forgiving, helpful. Is that what I see down there? Oh, I don't know. Here's my eraser. That one said they wanted to be in the book of life. I wrote their name down. They were baptized. I wrote it in there. Are they going to take it out? Do I have to erase it? He has to weigh that. He ponders our hearts daily and how we react and what we do. This is scary stuff. But your eternal judgment is going to be how you there, I'll try to point at everybody, two at me, well, these all go back, and how we treat the same group and others. That's scary. Because your attitude toward God isn't always the same as your attitude toward your brother or sister. All right, let's get into this then. What does he expect of his bride? What does he want us to live up to? How should this relationship go? Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. See, this, this teaching is for those whom he was calling aside, the weak in the base, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the ne'er-do-wells, basically, of society, not the politicians, not the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, not the important people in society, but just the common, everyday, run-of-the-mill people. And he taught them. Now, if others heard it, the multitude, that's okay, but that, that's not who he was preaching to. And he's not preaching to the world here when we read this today. He's telling us, the candidates, to be the bride. How we, as sister wives together, are to work together to be a proper bride. Now, I'm not saying by this that polygamy is okay uh, in terms of physical existence. God created man and wife or husband and wife, man and woman, uh, to reflect that relationship between Christ and his bride. 
and the faithfulness they show to each other is a critical aspect in that in every way. So he intended us to be husband and wife with one and to reflect the relationship we should have spiritually in that relationship. Now he has expanded it on a spiritual level, which is his prerogative, and he needs it as a governing body for the world and the millennium and thereafter. So he's done it this way. He opened his mouth and taught them, say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have an attitude of not being vain and proud of their knowledge, of their mentality, of their looks, of where they came from, or anything else, but who have an attitude of poverty toward themselves. That's what he's speaking of here. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that you don't have much of God's spirit. Poor in spirit means that you control your spirit and have the attitude. Remember what he said of the Pharisee who lifted his hands and said, Oh God, you, you really have to kind of bless me because I am so awesome, you know. And then he said, No, I'll look to that man who hangs his head, bows his knee, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So our inward thoughts, our inward assessment of ourselves, need to be the same as that man who hung his said, head and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because if we do, this is the very first attitude he brings up. The very first thing, right out of the box. You've got to have an attitude of not having all the answers, of not knowing the, being the know-all, be-all. You have to think of yourself in low terms. Now, our society around us <clears throat> teaches us that we need high self-esteem, that we need to esteem ourselves very highly, that we are special, that we're everything that you ever could be. Parents do it, teachers do it, the educational system does it. They teach us vanity, pride, and ego from the time we're little. What a beautiful little girl. They teach us, or a little boy, either one, it can be, what a handsome young man. They start getting us to think that we're better looking than anybody around us that we're special in some way. Now, it is true that we don't want to go around, you know, eating worms at all times and say, well, I just can't do anything because I'm no good. That's the other side of it. But what our society is doing is teaching us not that inner character is what counts, but the outside beauty is what counts. So we live in a society that... Nearly all the commercials are about handsome young men and beautiful young women. Or the car that you drive that makes you look beautiful, even if you are dog ugly. It's all about us being wealthy and good-looking and smart. <clears throat> That's what the world teaches us. Is it any wonder we are vain and proud and self-centered, egocentric, no, taught to us from the beginning. 
Why don't we say, that's a be well-behaved child? Why do you have to say, that's a beautiful child? That's just the way we do it. But the character and the way we act and our personality development is far more important than our physical looks. God the Father made that point in spades, did he not? By sending his very own son who had all the glory, all the beauty, all the power, all the intellect of the universe and sent him down to the earth as a homely person. There was nothing about him that you would look at that would cause you to desire him in any physical way. He was not a pretty man. He was not a handsome man. He was hard to look at, if you want to put it that way, on purpose. Because his teachings, his character, his personality, his way of doing things were what were important. And God and he did not want people to look to him because of height or looks, they wanted to look, them to look at him because of his character. We had to deal with life as a homely person. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize that they have faults, weaknesses, problems, sins, who, as Paul put it, esteem others better than themselves. Now why is it hockey moms and little league moms and dads have such screaming matches at all their children's games and organized activities and get completely out of line over my kid? and how good my kid is, and you're not treating my kid right, and we get so defensive, so easily, about how my kid's being mistreated. Because since it's my kid, it's got to be wonderful. Since my kid is, it's my kid is beautiful, you know, my kid. So we esteem ourselves and our children higher than we ought, all too often. So what he's saying here at the beginning is, I'm looking for people who are poor in spirit, that is, they're contrite, they're meek, they're humble, they're not full of pride and vanity. To so this man, while well, I looked, it says clear back in Isaiah, to him who is contrite of spirit and is humble and meek. I think it's 62, is it? Somewhere right in there. So if we're going to begin to fulfill what Christ tells us in Matthew 25, then the very first thing is to be humble and not proud. Now, we're pretty hard-headed, pretty not-headed sometimes in our attitudes, and I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to be instructed. How are you going to teach? How are you going to guide? How are you going to lead people? who already have their minds made up. This is the way I'm going to be, and this is the way it is. And if you say anything different, you're meddling in my life. 
That was one of the things that we were always taught in the ministry when we're going out to visit people. Look for teachability. People who don't have their theory about everything because the truth is not known in the world, is it? Protestantism, Hinduism, any religion, or atheism if there is really such a thing. The truth of God is very, very scarce in the world. And it is a world full of proud nations and proud people. And nations fight among themselves and people fight among themselves. They don't want to be taught anything other than what they were taught by parents who didn't know any better or schools who are deliberately now leading people astray or whatever. But they have their attitudes, their methods, and we did not go there to be taught. Didn't John say, First John, if they come and bring not this doctrine, or if they listen to us, in other words, they're teachable, then God may be working with them. But if they're there to teach you and to straighten you out, John says, don't have anything to do with them. They don't know the truth. You have the truth. You teach them the truth. If they're humble, they'll accept the truth. If they're vain and proud and have their own opinions, don't deal with them. Don't bid them Godspeed. Don't let them in your house. That's the way God deals with vanity, pride, and ego. So first, be teachable. Do you know everything? Do I know everything? We're just really beginning, aren't we? I was in the church for, from childhood, a long time ago. And then God blew the church apart. And you know what? I think I've learned more truth since then than I ever had then. I know more by far over the last 16 years about this book beginning in 96, 14 years, than ever before. So many subjects have come up that we were utterly wrong about. Now, most of the church, brethren, is not poor in spirit today. They have their opinions from worldwide. They have their opinions about what they were taught long ago. And they are not willing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. They're going to sit on what they knew or sit on what they think and their minds are not open. Now, I have to admit, there are a lot of things I just simply didn't know. And some of them are major things, aren't they? We, if God is going to use us and make us a part of his bride, have to be teachable, willing to learn, willing to sort it out, to set our prejudices, our beliefs, our thoughts aside and see what God actually says. Now, I think I am emphasizing and driving home a point now that we have sort of skipped over. 
but our judgment truly comes from how we treat one another right here. And it is a scary thought. Whatever pie-in-the-sky fantasy you had about your relationship with God is brought to the earth like the Hindenburg that blew up and falls in tattered, burning pieces when you compare Christ's statement with the way we often treat one another, is it? Because that's the true judgment. That's what he judges by, not what we think our relationship is with him. So here is your test for yourself. Now, we all need to assess where we are spiritually, don't we? We need to assess that regularly. How am I doing? Am I on the path to God's kingdom, or am I going to be shut out? We need to be able to see progress, don't we? To say, well, yeah, I am growing, I am overcoming, I, my hope is growing because I'm doing better. All right, how do we judge that? By how fervent our prayer was this morning? By how much we studied the Bible last week? Well, prayer and study of God's Word is very, very important, and he told kings to read it every day. And we're in training to be kings as well as a bride. So those things are important, but the actual judgment is based on how we are treating each other. And why do we read this every day? Because a king or a queen deals with what in a kingdom? People, subjects, the kingdom. So he needs to study this, and that's what God said. He told David to read it every day so that he might be a proper king. David or Psalm, whoever he said it to. So our Bible study is about, and our prayer, is about how we treat one another. Because that's what he brings it down to. That's why we pray and study. Is that we might live among each other the way Christ would live among us and teach us because we are called to live with him and we are called to run a kingdom or children as a bride and a mother. That's what we're called to do. So this is a training ground for that and how to get the relationships right. So if you're wondering how you're progressing spiritually, use the same standard that Christ does. Don't base it necessarily on how much prayer and study and how good a prayer and study it was. Base it on how you are treating your friends, your enemies, those you despise. That's how Christ is judging you. So if you want to get some introspection, some idea of how you're doing, ask, how are my relationships going? How am I doing with these people right here on this land, for instance, that I'm living along with and beside? How am I getting along with them? All of them. Do I have my little clique? Do I have those that I spend time with and not others? 
Not that it's wrong for us to have closer friends and family that we spend more time with. Christ did love John more than he loved the others because of John's attitude and various things about his personality. And that is clear in Scripture. But do we spend time with those to the exclusion of others so that it becomes cliquish, it becomes us against them, or the North Street and the South Street, or the old and the young, or you know, whatever way we might divide it up in our minds and pigeonhole people. Do we treat all the same way? Are we humble and meek and poor in spirit with all? With some, do we treat a certain way, and others, our pride gets in the way the minute they show up because we have an attitude about them. Would Christ have an attitude about them? What would his attitude be? Well, if we are proud, if we are vain, if we are self-centered, then we are also, by definition, self-righteous. And that's a term none of us like. It's a term we do not want to be used with our name. But when we place our opinions and our thoughts and our ideas and our welfare and well-being and our children and our mate and whatever above others in terms of treatment, then we are self-righteous. I am righteous or more righteous than you are. That's what self-righteousness is. An assessment of myself is righteous, and that's exactly what the Pharisee was doing. Oh, Lord, bless me, because I'm better than these. Poor in spirit means, forgive me, I'm a sinner. If we do not have the attitude of, forgive me, I'm a sinner, as we go through life, we have a problem right off the bat. How is our attitude? I'm here to learn. I'm here to teach. I mean, be taught. I'm here to serve, to give, to help. Whatever is needed, wherever it is needed, I'm here to do that. I don't have my little way. When a need arises, I'm there. It's not I'll see you Tuesday uh, the 14th in March of 2016 because... I do have a little gap in my schedule there, and I'll, I'll take care of your need. Thank you. Now, a ready mind is a mind that's there to serve day or night any time a need arises. That's what a serving, giving attitude is. Now, sure, there are scheduling uh, considerations. Some things require immediate attention. Heart attack, you know, <laughs> CPR is needed now, not next week, or whatever. So yes, there are priorities, and sometimes something we're doing uh, is more important than what somebody else needs done at the moment, but certainly our attitude should be, uh, I'll get on that as quick as I can, let me finish what I'm doing right here, uh, somebody's dying, and then I'll be over to help you. That's the attitude we need to cultivate so that we love each other as much as we love ourselves. That's all he asks, not more. But whatever you would be willing to do for yourself, you should be willing to do for someone else. 
Then you're getting past the vanity and the ego and the self-importance and saying, I am here as a servant to all. And I will put aside whatever I'm doing to help someone else. That's the attitude we should have. And then how we administer it and wisdom goes from there. But that's the attitude God is seeking. Now, if we are humble and meek, and he says that he's drawn to the meek and the humble, and he resists the proud, Peter says that, we have any pride, any ego, he resists that. God is against that. He saw it in the Pharisees. So he said, humble and meek is what I'm after. For theirs is what? The kingdom that's coming from heaven. That's the very first attitude we have to get. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Christ was a man of sorrows, wasn't he? Says he was. Why was he sorrowful? Was it because he wasn't getting enough to eat? Was it because he didn't have any clothes? Was it because of those physical needs that he mourned? No, he mourned because he saw evil, because he saw mistreatment, because he saw favoritism, because he saw war and fighting and arguments, physical war and mental and emotional war. He saw a lot of problems on the earth. What kind of problems? Relationship problems. One human being to another one nation to another. And it made him sad and sorrowful that people couldn't get along. Like when you see here on this property, two people that are clashing with each other and can't seem to get along. It hurts, it's sorrowful, it's sad that people are at odds with one another. And they have too much vanity and selfishness and pride and ego to swallow whatever lump it is that's in their throat, and get over it and truly love each other. It's sad. It's sorrow. It shouldn't be. That's why I'm talking about it. And the only reason I'm talking about it today is because here he was explaining to his disciples what it takes to be the bride of Christ. He was beginning to make a covenant with these guys to be the leaders of the church. So he said, here's what you've got to do. This is the way it is. This isn't the way it is in the world around you. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, mourning is no fun, is it? Being sad and frustrated and, and irritated and upset about the way people act and the way people do and the way people are. It's frustrating, isn't it? Who does it frustrate the most? The one that thinks that. That's who it frustrates the most. It doesn't frustrate the one you're thinking all those thoughts about nearly as much as it does you. You're hurting yourself more than you're hurting them. But you carry it inside. Rather than mourning about it and doing what we can to rectify it, solve it, fix it, we carry it. 
for they shall be comforted. Those who truly care and mourn and are meek and humble, and it bothers them to see problems, and they do all they can to fix it rather than judge it or, or uh, be critical or judgmental, but do everything they can to help the situation. Because if we're helping others through their mourning and their troubles and their difficulties in life, then God says we'll be comforted by it. And how does that comfort come? The Holy Spirit is the comforter, but God will work through those who are meek and humble and poor in spirit. He will not work through those who are proud and vain and egocentric because the Spirit of God resists that. It's just not Him. How humble that he and his son have to be to send him down here to die for us. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Everything he's saying here at the very beginning of this talk with his disciples is about their attitudes, about how they should approach life. We're taught in competition and sports and spelling bees and whatever else in school to be competitive and to win at all costs. And if it's a card game, we can get so excited about who it is that's winning. You know, whatever game you're, Monopoly, Scrabble, War, or Risk, I guess it is. Whatever game we're playing, got to win. Now, it's in us all to be, to one degree or another, competitive, isn't it? And we're taught that by parents and by school and by life and by business. Now, sure, you're not there to say, well, okay, I'm here, give me all the bad cards because I want to lose. No, that's not the right attitude either. But we do our best with what little we might have to try to play our cards right and to do the best we can so the level of play is on a higher level. It's how we play the cards, but then we don't get so competitive and angry about whether they're winning or we're winning or not. You see, that's the way life is. You play with the cards you got. We might be stupid, we might be ignorant, we might be ugly, we might be short and whatever. Those are the cards we were dealt. We play that hand the best we can. But we don't compete with each other about who's the best looking or who's the handsomest or the strongest or whatever and get ourselves all worked up about how much better we are than somebody else. And sometimes these things are not that blatant and open, but they're very subtle. So many things are very subtle in the mind that we don't even recognize them ourselves. And we deceive ourselves, don't we, about what our real attitude is. If only we could see ourselves as others see us is a very, very true saying. Because every one of us is viewed a lot differently in the eyes of others than in our own eyes. We often cannot see our faults and our problems and our attitudes. Others can't. 
and we self-deceive. So first, poor in spirit, then mournful, sorrowful about the evil we see around us and doing everything we can to help wherever we can those that are hurting. And then be meek, accepting, loving, swallowing our pride. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I'm about to blow my voice out here, it seems. We're not content with the way we are. We are not content with the teaching we have had. We are not content to stay as we are. We hunger and thirst after righteousness to try to do things right. You know, it's human to try to get away with as much as we can, is it not? We run into this in many, many different ways. We want to do what we want to do, and we will push the limit just as close as we can to the edge, rather than saying, this is the way God would want me to be, therefore I'm going to do all I can to be sure I fulfill it. It's like the thing of modesty, which has come up in our dress and so on. I'll just use it as a brief example here, since it's recent that we've talked about it some more. Is the attitude, I'm going to push this thing as far as I can, I'm going to get away with as much as I can, or is it, if God says for us to be modest, I'm going to do all within my power to be sure I live up to that. See, it's a matter of attitude, is what it is. Am I going to push it? Am I going to try to be as much like the world as I can be? As much as I can get away with? Or am I going to come down on the side of being as careful as I can to be sure I live within what God says? I'm on totally safe ground, not out here dangling off the cliff and hoping I get by with it. That's human nature, isn't it? It's like the old thing about hair. Paul made it very clear that a man is to have his hair short, and that a woman is to have it long. So we have men who will push it just as far as they can, and this has been the case through the decades in the church history, as far as they can and hope they can get away with it without being told to go get a haircut. And then we have women who will cut it just as short as they can and see if they can get by with it that short. It's all about an attitude. Two people might actually have, man or woman, the same length of hair, but they have totally different attitudes. See what I mean? What is going on in the mind and the emotions? The attitude is what counts the most. Am I pushing it one way or the other? Whatever the subject might be. How short is short hair? How long is long hair? You know, do we have to make an administrative decision and with the men measure how hair their long their hair will be and with the women how short it can be? 
we shouldn't need to go there. If God says a woman should wear her hair as a covering, then she needs to be sure that it covers whatever it is that God was talking about. Be sure that she's within the guidelines that God sets. See? And if a man is to wear his cut short, then he needs to be sure there's no question about it. Is somebody going to look at me and say, who's that girl? Oh, see, turned around. It's a matter of an attitude. Do all we can to be sure we were within what God wants. To hunger and thirst after righteousness rather than hungering and thirsting after the world and wanting to do it that way but saying, well, I'm in church, so I'll just begrudge this. I'll do it because they say so. It goes back to well, I'll be careful around Daryl, be careful what I say around the elders, but I'll do what I want when I'm out in the world. It's not the right attitude. The right attitude is to hunger and thirst after righteousness wherever we may be on the face of this earth. Whoever we may be around, we want to be as much like the Father and the Son as we can get. That's our mind, that's our approach to God and His work not trying to push it the other way. I've used this before, but in, in college they called it cliffhanging. A boy and a girl could go out for a walk. They could get as alone as they could. They could get off to themselves. They could hope they fell off the cliff because that's really what deep down inside they wanted to do was fall off the cliff. They wanted to do things they shouldn't do. So <clears throat> the attitude instead should be, let's get with a group, let's be with others, let's not try to pair off and hope we fall off the cliff. It's an attitude. We are to flee from fornication, not get as close to it as we possibly can and hope it happens. or whatever the subject may be. God hates sin. He cannot stand to be around sin. He puked the church out because of sin. Primarily just lackadaisical attitudes. That we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now come tonight, sundown this evening, we're going to start fasting, aren't we? No food or water for 24 hours. And you know what? By the end of that period tomorrow night, I'm going to be thirsty. And I'm going to be somewhat hungry. And more than likely, I'm going to have a headache for the last two or three or four hours because my body is going to be craving a cup of coffee. And all it takes is one cup of coffee and the headache will go away. But you know what? I'm going to have to lay there and just let it hurt till the sun goes down. And sometimes it does that and sometimes it doesn't. And I know if I give it up three or four days ahead and get it out of my system, I wouldn't have the headache. But I like my coffee in the morning, so I'll just put up with the headache. Thank you.
It won't be pleasant, but if I get it, I'll get it. I'll deal with it. As soon as the sun goes down, I'm going to have a big drink of water and a big cup of coffee. And about 30 minutes later, my head will feel fine. But I begin to hunger and thirst for that cup of coffee is the point I want to make about three, four hours before sundown. Now, God wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness the same way we do when we go without food or water, or in this case, I add coffee. I don't know what you do, but we're all different with what we might desire, hunger, and thirst for. <clears throat> for they shall be filled. So it's not trying to, you know, get through the fence or sit on the fence. It's get clear over. Do the best you can. It's all about attitude. And that's all he talks about here, isn't it? This first, the beginning of this whole thing is all about attitude. Now, you can just read through this and say, well, that's nice. But that's why he has us preach. That's why he has us expound. To try to put it in terms that we can better deal with it. We can better have it sink into our hearts and minds and attitudes. In other words, drive it home. Explain it in various ways, so that if we missed it coming this way, we'll hear it coming that way. That's what preaching is for, is to give the sense, as it says in Nehemiah, to what the Scripture says, to bring it down to our lives individually and how we should be thinking. It's one thing to understand and read through this intellectually. It's another thing to put it in such a way that we can somehow get it into our lives and not just walk away and say that was nice and go ahead being what we were being. Now, I spent quite a bit of time here bringing up two or three different subjects that we sometimes have problems with in the way we approach life. <coughs> Will it make any difference? Was it worth the time? I could have I could have read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the time that I've spent here already and just read right through it and said, that's good, good teaching, do it. How much would it have changed us? I don't know. Maybe a little, maybe none. If I drive it home, talk about it, turn it over different ways, looking at all sides of the coin or the Rubik's Cube or whatever, will it help sink in that we get it and our attitude and approach changes. Because that's what it's really all about. We do what we do because of what's going on in our heart and our head. That's why we push things. It's because this is what we really want instead of what God would have of us. So we push it. And sometimes we don't even know we're pushing it. But we are. Well, it's almost 2 o'clock. I'm going to stop right there because I didn't make much project or progress. But anyway, I think it's worth the time to consider these things because we're here to be the bride of Christ. We're here to be acceptable to him, for him to want to marry us. You know, isn't it a bad image 
to think of yourself and think of your judge and think, I wonder if he likes how I am. I wonder if he's still got me on the, in the book of life. I wonder if he's got his eraser poised and he says, one more time and I'm just going to take you out of there. Or how long should I bear with this? Isn't it nice that he is forgiving and merciful and kind and gentle and loving? Are we like that with each other? How is our attitude? That's all we've talked about so far as we've gotten into this. It's how do we approach things? What's our mental and our emotional reaction to each other? And how we are reacting with one another is exactly how he's making his judgment of us. So go home with that scary thought, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank <clears throat> you.